Well, church family, we've reached the end of the book of Esther. It was, uh, it was, it was fun for me to be able to uh, go through this and teach it to you guys, and as well as just encouraging edify for me as well as I uh, just continue to see God's goodness um, throughout this book and even learning more about who he is and to trust him during this time. Before we begin, I'd like to share a little story. I think some of you guys are familiar with the movie Apollo 13. Um, there was a scene, if you remember, it was actually a real event, but you know, they, they, they kind of traumatized in, this, in the movie, but there was a scene in that film and in real life where, um, you know, they were, uh, uh, this Apollo 13 was a, a, a space shuttle that went up and they were, as they were doing their mission, they found out that, um, one of their oxygen thing that filters the oxygen, uh, exploded, uh, which means that they were unable to, uh, get oxygen and, uh, and, it got to the point where the carbon dioxide was approaching very dangerous levels and people on Earth, uh, actually one of the person that was on Earth was supposed to be on that, uh, on that mission, but the only reason why he didn't go was because he contracted measles. Uh, so he was down on Earth and he was kind of like the main guy. And he actually helped lead the uh, rescue mission. And how they did the rescue mission was they, uh, people on, in space would have to tell the people on Earth what kind of supplies and, uh, materials they have so they could kind of reconstruct something that could help them get oxygen back. And then, uh, people on Earth had to try to get, uh, duplicates of everything that they have in that shuttle. And, uh, if you remember the scene, the guy, uh, pours out all the stuff that they have and he tells, uh, um, he tells the, the people in, on Earth, like, okay, here's all the material that they have up in space. We need to figure out based on what we have, uh, to build uh, a device that will help get rid of the carbon dioxide. Uh, so they did. They, they were using scraps and different things that normally would not work uh, unless you have, like, you know, a tremendous amount of engineering. Uh, they, they had to just um, work with what they with little that they have. In the end, they, they succeeded. Uh, but I would imagine for the people in space and the people on Earth, uh, it was probably really frustrating because they were using things that were not meant to be. Um, they were using instruments and and tools that were meant for other things, but they had to, you know, out of desperation, try to maneuver everything that they have so that they can survive. Uh, and perhaps some of you have felt this type of frustration before. Uh, you've kind of, uh, you may, perhaps some of you have, have to try to fix something while feeling handicapped because of you know, different, the wrong material being used. And uh, if you ever have experienced something like that, uh, that that type of angst and frustration, you you begin to slowly understand what God feels when He uses us and all of humanity. Of course, when God uses us, He's very patient and very kind, and there's no sin when He's working using us for His purposes. Uh, God works with broken vessels. God uses things that other people would think is is uh, useless, um, but He uses broken vessels to ultimately achieve what He wants. Uh, as a way to summarize this entire book for, I guess, one last time, the book of Esther takes place not in uh, Israel or in Jerusalem, uh, but takes place in the, in, in the Persian Empire. It takes place in Susa, in particular, the capital of Persia. And uh, the story begins with uh, King Ahasuerus wanting to have this huge party. And uh, King Ahasuerus is a man of impulses, and this is the only second thing that controls him is uh, from impulses is, is his advisors. Um, he has this impulse of uh, having this huge party, and then he wanted to show off his wife, and 
his wife said no, and he wasn't used to that. So then his advisor tell him we got to get rid of Queen Vashti, and they did. And then, uh, you know, several years later, uh, the king realized that his queen was gone. So then he has to hold another beauty pageant, or a beauty pageant, not another one, a, a beauty pageant, uh, to try to find a new queen. And that's where Esther comes in. Uh, Esther was a Jew, uh, secretly, uh, and uh, his her cousin uh, that kind of raised her, Mordecai and Esther, you know, there's a huge age difference, Mordecai's a lot older. He tells Esther to keep this a secret, that his, don't let people know about her ethnic background. It's almost like a secret card that uh, they want to keep in the back pocket in case something happens. And uh, and that's what happened. She she gains favor with the king because of how pretty she looked. And that's really all that she has for, going for her at the time. Uh, she becomes queen. Uh, and um, after, uh, not long after becoming queen, Mordecai uncovers a plot that... Um, from these two eunuchs that wanted to kill the king, and uh, he 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 he, can, he finds his conspiracy, uh, unravels it, and then these two get killed. While Mordecai just kind of goes back to what he is used to doing, uh, without being rewarded or anything. Then, chapter three, we hear we're introduced to a character named Haman. And if you're a Jew, Jewish person hearing this during Purim, you'd be like saying "boo" right now. But anyways, uh, so chapter three, we see. Uh, Haman, he comes in, he wants people to honor him, he wants people to bow down to him. Mordecai doesn't, and he doesn't do it because of ethnic reasons and things that's happened in the past. This infuriates Haman, so he devises a plan to kill all the Jews. And he, uh, again, um, somehow tactfully and uh, was able to manipulate the king to go and put this edict out to go and kill the Jews one year later. You remember that how, why it was one year later it was because... Um, Haman was casting these lots, and God was sovereignly uh, making the lots land in a particular way so that it doesn't land on any time early, but it has to be one year from now. And uh, we talked about this last week, how the Lord uh, used this so that he, so that the second edict that will come was, was, was able to play catch up with the first one. Chapter 4, uh, Esther learns a plot about uh, what Haman was doing through Mordecai's weeping, and uh, Mordecai tells Esther that you need to figure out a way, you need to start you need to go and uh, figure out a way to help deliver the Jews. And if if she doesn't act upon it, then someone from somewhere else will will, will deliver them. And Esther uh, uh, fast, and then she goes and executes phase one of her plan. And we see in chapter five, uh, she goes to make this banquet, and uh, Haman and the king was was like, okay, uh, we're gonna have this banquet with her. The king asks, like, what is it that you want? And he uh, and Esther calls an audible and says, I want uh, another meal with both of you. And then uh, Haman goes on and becomes really excited. And it's like, oh man, I get to be in another meal with the king and queen, and look how great I am. And he boasts about his family and his success to his, his own family. And, uh, and it, but yet, even though all his success, he felt completely empty because he hated Mordecai. He, he, Mordecai robbed him of all, uh, his happiness. Chapter six, um, begins with, uh, uh, this dream, that was, that was like this one, uh, insomniac moment from the king where he couldn't sleep and he reads, uh, the history books and he finds out that Mordecai, um, Rest, uh, saved him at one point in the past, and he asked, uh, "Who? What should we do with him?" And he asked uh, Haman, "What should you do?" And Haman thought he, that he was going to get promoted, and he gives him all the things things that he wanted. But in the end, he put all those things that Haman stated was 
placed onto Mordecai. Mordecai gets honored, him gets frustrated, gets depressed, and then at the end of chapter 6, uh, his wife and his friend tells him that if you cannot struck down, strike down Mordecai, uh, then that means there's some special divine hand behind him and you're going to be struck down. And uh, that's what happens in chapter 7. Chapter 7, there was a dinner at the banquet. Um, Esther reveals that there was someone that wants to kill her and her people, and the king was fr- frustrated and wanted to know who it was, and then Esther reveals that it was Haman. And uh, uh, the king gets upset. He goes outside, goes for a smoke. <laughs> it just takes to, he needs to, to get some air. And then he comes back and he sees Haman on top of uh, Esther pleading uh, for help. And then he interprets that as uh, Haman wanting to assault her. So he gets the guards to grab him and he gets hanged on the gallows that was meant for Mordecai. Then chapter 8, Mordecai gets promoted. And then the second de- decree gets sent out into the world or all of the... Um, Persia, and again, this is a, they're playing catch up here because they're, the first edict took several months to get to the place all over, and then, uh, this is about, you know, three months in, and then, uh, they have to send a second edict to try to play catch up before the year mark, and then, uh, that's what happened in chapter nine. The Jews were ordered that they're able to defend themselves, and then the, the Feast of Purim, uh, is instituted. Uh, they, they use this as a way to celebrate how Mordecai and Esther, um, delivered them, uh, uh, Delivered the Jews and they were spared from it. Now we get to chapter 10. Chapter 10 is the, is the shortest chapter of the book and is essentially the epilogue. It's the epilogue of this entire book. It's, 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 I mean, if you end the chapter 9, it seems like it's a cool way to end, but then they want to also let you know what happens to Mordecai. So I'm going to go through chapter 10, uh, three verses, the shortest one that we'll have in this whole entire Esther series. Let's start. Now King Harris laid a tribute on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. Uh, so this first verse, we see that, uh, there, uh, that King Ashes had this tribute. And when we think of tribute, we think of like maybe some sacrifice or giving something up. But actually, if you go back, um, when the queen became, when Queen Esther became queen, they, uh, they actually celebrated uh, by having this thing, this holiday. In the NASB, it translates the word holiday, but the ESV and the CSB actually translates it as a, uh, an uplifting of taxes, like a release of taxes. So the king at the time, when he found the new queen, he said, okay, for a certain amount of time, I'm, you guys don't even have to pay your taxes anymore. He was so happy that he found a queen like Esther that he decided that the entire Persian Empire does not need uh, to pay taxes, which is, explains why uh, Haman was motivated and saying, okay, we can kill all the Jews and you can get all the stuff, get all of their uh, you could pillage all the Jews' material and give it all to the king, and the king said he doesn't want it. Um, and the reason why uh, any king would do something like this is because it just shows how wealthy he is. Uh, king Harris was, you know, he, he had all the wealth that he was able to go through several um, months uh, without uh, without taxes. Um, he was able to flip the bill for every single thing. But by the end of chapter 10, or beginning of chapter 10, he establishes it again. He puts the tax back into into place. It's kind of like, okay, party's over, now get back to work. Um, and it says that he, it, the tribute went on the land and on the, all the seacoast. So it just basically went all over Persia. His, his, it's funny how like the, the edict, the first two edicts took months to get, to get done. But when it comes to taxes, it, it seems even faster than everything else, which shows the priority of the king. He would rather get his money rather than to protect his spouse or even, uh, fulfill his second man, second hand in commands, wishes of eliminating the Jews. But anyway, that's what happens. Like, uh, the king begins to set this, uh, 
tax back to the entire nation, and that's what and you know people start paying taxes again. Verse two, and all the accomplishments of his authority and strength, and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the books of chronicles of the, of the kings of Media and Persia? Uh, so what's interesting is like Haman. I mean Mordecai gets uh, his name gets recorded again uh, first in the book where um, uh, earlier when he saves. Uh, the king in secret, and now this other public thing where he saves the Jews, and, uh, saves the Jews. Um, his name is written in, in these writings, in Book of Chronicles of the Kings of Media and Persia. These, this isn't like the first and second chronicles of the Bible. These are actually different books. These are secular writings, actually, and um, I don't think I've, I, I've tried to find if they, if this, if they ever like found these scrolls or. Um, tablets, whatever they call it, whatever they used back then, and I couldn't find it, but it is fascinating to note that there was a, that if one day down the line, if some archaeologist digs up and finds a scroll and reads like, oh, there's, uh, during the time of King Agriharis, uh there was this whole event of, um, the whole book of Esther, uh, it would be cool because it just shows that history and the Bible are one and the same. Um, we actually do see that in you know, if you're one of those people that are really into like archaeology, you can actually find a lot of things that are in history, secular writings that speak of uh, the, the God of the Bible. Um, that's one of those things that we can um, that, we're, that I think one of the reasons why we believe the Bible is true is because even secular history acknowledges the events of the Bible. Uh, if you find some, you can find even some of the old scrolls about Egypt when the Israelites left. Uh, they have all the things about killing the the baby Jews and then. Uh, the Exodus happening obviously is kind of like um, written in a way that didn't make the Jew, didn't make the Egyptians seem like they were uh, pummeled, uh, but that but they have rec- records of these things. Again, this shows that the the Bible is true. That um, even this one little line tells you that secular history uh, has all of these events as well. Uh, verse three: For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and in favor with his many kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people, and one who spoke of the welfare of his whole nation. Uh, he used, uh, it's, it's cool how Mordecai, uh, when he has this position, he gets honored, and uh, it says that he used his uh, position for the good of his people. So he wasn't like Haman, where Haman tried to use everything to elevate and promote himself. Mordecai at least had a level of humility uh, that he used his position to care for others. And then the reason why I say level of humility, because in, in verse 2, chapter 10, uh, people were like praising Mordecai and, uh, and blessing him. And this, and, you know, they were willing to bow. And he's accepted all of that. Um, at chapter, uh, 6, when Haman had to go around and tell everyone about Mordecai, Mordecai was totally fine with people bowing down to him. And same thing with chapter 10. He just didn't want to bow down to Haman. You know, so it shows that this guy, as, as great as he is and as, as selfless as it seems, he is still a flawed individual. And, uh, he used all his ability to, um, to, for, for other people's good. And his, and his act is what brought him a greatness to all of, uh, Persia. Now, as we look at this last chapter, um, we ha- we see the, uh, really the epilogue of Mordecai, which uh, he's a flawed individual. He's a flawed individual, and even though he doesn't even acknowledge Yahweh in this in this entire book, uh, God still uses him uh, without his knowledge. I'm sure he might be aware of it, but he doesn't really praise the Lord and give direct credit to him. 
uh, but God is still able to use broken vessels for his glory. And that's what we're going to look at this week. This week we're going to look at uh, three ways in which the Lord uh, uses broken vessels. And maybe a question you might have is, why would God use broken vessels? And the answer is because God only has broken vessels to work with. Um, so there's three things about how the Lord uses broken vessels. That's what we're going to look at this week. Um, and the intention I want to go through this is so that you don't uh, underestimate your own worth in the kingdom of God. Um, you might be small in the eyes of the public or even within the context of the church. But yet, if you are faithful to the Lord, the Lord will use you in ways that you'll never expect. Um, to, and I think it's for us to just realize that all of us are broken vessels. It should keep us humble and the opportunity that we have to serve uh, the Lord because we are all sinners. We're all broken, but yet the Lord is still faithful and patient to use us in ways uh, that would magnify his glory. So the first, the, so I'll just give you the outline right now. Uh, the first is the Lord raises broken vessels. Second, the Lord uses broken vessels. And lastly, the Lord rewards broken vessels. Uh, and I hope that as you go, as we go through each of these, that you'll find, um, that you'll be encouraged to be able to see your life in relative to how the Lord is going to use each and every single one of us for his glory. Uh, thanks for listening. I look forward to finishing off Esther with you this week. Take care. Bye.